and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we're talking about Waiting for Guffman. We're talking about it with the great Woody Sticks. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my tremendous co-host, Sarah Marshall. Waiting for Guffman is a 1996 American mockumentary comedy film. It was written by Christopher Guest and Eugene Levy. It is directed by Christopher Guest. The film's ensemble cast includes Guest, Levy, Catherine O'Hara, Fred Willard, and Parker Posey. And Woody Sticks is a comic and a stripper, separately and together. Uh, Woody has been on the show before. We've talked about Harriet the Spy, and we adore Woody. How are you doing out there? How's everything going in your life? How is, uh, how's the fam? How are your friends? How is the journey? Tell us how it's going at You Are Good Pod on Twitter and You Are Good Pod again on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. Anyway, we really do hope everything is good in your world. And uh, don't forget that you, my friend, are good. Our show is made possible by your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Apple Podcast subscriptions. In exchange for your support over in those places, and of course, just, you know, your support makes the show possible, but in exchange for that support, you get bonus episodes. We just released a bonus episode about the first season of Sex in the City. It has been received with a whole lot of love, and we appreciate that. So, you know, if you are a Sex in the City fan, you get that. You get that bonus conversation. And if you're not a Sex in the City fan, hopefully you can just enjoy a couple of pals talking. The first season of Sex in the City is a ball. And again, you can hear us talk about that on our Patreon and Apple podcast subscription bonus chat. Let's see, we've got a couple of pieces of news for you. One, You're Wrong About is going out on a spring tour. You'll get to see Sarah and uh, some You're Wrong About friends, including Carolyn Kendrick, the producer of this show. Uh, She'll be performing some songs. So look out for a link to that tour in the show notes so you can find out where we're going and when we're going there. I'll be just running around doing some tour managing and uh, probably also uh, personing the merch table. So if you see me and you listen to this show and you're going to the You're Wrong About tour, uh, come and say hello love to hear from you. And the other piece of news is uh, Woody Sticks, the guest on this here episode of You Are Good, uh, he and I are doing this little stage show called Steady Bad Luckers. We're doing it in San Diego. We're doing it in Los Angeles. We're doing it in San Francisco in the middle of the month of March. Uh, It's a stage show. It's kind of like a podcast, but it's not in your ears. It's in front of your eyes. And uh, Woody and I are talking about some lovable and not so lovable losers who've been forgotten by history. (laughs) You know, podcasts have made it. So there are so many uh, wonderful stories in which folks are redeemed in our eyes. And uh, and Woody and I, who've become friends through this show, we relate to the losers. <laughs> and so we're telling some of those stories on stage. So look out for Dates to Steady Bad Luckers by way of a link in the show notes. Again, middle of March, San Diego, Los Angeles, and Sacramento. Look out for us there. 
Time to get into the advertising corner. We would like to thank the .gay domain for sponsoring this episode. Since launching in 2020, over 18,000 individuals, organizations, and businesses have registered a .gay domain name, and they are just getting started. The .gay domain is committed to providing a safer internet for LGBTQ communities by banning and taking down hateful content. So if you're sick of using a domain that doesn't represent you, switch to .gay today. Head over to youaregood.gay to get a free .gay domain name of your choice for your own website or brand for one year. Make .gay your online identity because .com is not gay enough. And we would like to thank Queer Candle Company. Queer Candle Company makes small batch soy wax candles. They're hand poured with love. They are a queer and trans owned business. Their candles are topped with a variety of botanicals, including pressed flowers, dried herbs, and zested aromatics. I said it before, but weirdly, I've been a candle kid. I think it goes back to uh, church for some reason. <laughs> it stayed, even though I haven't been to church in a long, long time. But I love candles. So when Queer Candle Company came along, I reached out and got myself a fig and vine soy candle. It fits right in with all of my candle fancy. And I appreciate that it comes from a great company. Queer Candle Company donates 10% of their monthly profits to the Sylvia Rivera Law Project. They sell DIY refill kits online, so any candle is endlessly refillable. You can use our show code, YOUARGOOD, all one word, at checkout to get 10% off first orders on the Queer Candle Company website. So find yourself a candle. Find yourself many candles at QueerCandleCo.com or on Insta and TikTok at QueerCandleCo. Thank you so much, Doc Gay. Thank you so much, Queer Candle Co., for uh, making the whole show possible. We appreciate you. All right. Let's wait for government. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Or as they say in Missouri, hello. <laughs> Have you seen any good plays lately? Yes, I saw um, a one-man show of Titanic at Dynasty Typewriter. And I also saw Red, White, and Blaine, a quirky St. Clair original. <laughs> Which one would you go back to? Both. <laughs> How does one make a one-man show about Titanic? How'd it work? Okay, so the show is called Never Let Go. It's by Michael Kinnan. And uh, it's very simple. You act out all the parts and you also get a, a stepladder to climb up and down when you need to be <laughs> at the Rose and Jack meeting and then jumping around on a sinking ship. And then you get a, a Rubbermaid tub full of water to dunk your head in at the end. Were you moved? I was so moved. I was so moved that I almost died. I also, this was, I went to this with our friend Akila Green. Oh. And I was like, boy, I hope Akila doesn't mind someone shrieking next to her the whole time, because that's what I'm doing. You're a shrieker. Yeah. You respond. And I'm so happy to say that we have another shrieker amongst us. Uh, among Us? We have another shrieker among us. We have our good friend, Woody Sticks, who brought us this movie. This is the day of the show, y'all. Woody, you ever pierce the toast? Oh, you know I do. Twice a day. Right? Hello, Woody. Hello. I'm shrieking over here. I'm gasping. I'm more of a gasper than a shrieker in an audience. Mm. Mm. 
I like to raise the stakes on the other side of the curtain, you know? <laughs> That's a good one. I think probably gasps have the same effect dramatically and are less likely to give your friends tinnitus. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Just don't light any newspapers on fire and you should be all right. <laughs> <laughs> Like Woody, tell us about your relationship with this movie, your history with this movie. Why, why this movie? Uh, Waiting for Guffman. I don't remember the first time I ever saw it. It's just always been in me, you know. And so when I think about like uh, the things I love all the way down, this is one of them. And it's uh, I think more true to life than non theater people would ever know which also like really tickles me you know i think it works uh i love i love a piece of media that everybody can watch and enjoy for different reasons and i think theater people watch this and weep you know out of sincerity and i think non-theater people watch this and laugh out of absurdity but i think it lands in the same place of like wow these people just want so much and as a person who wants so much can relate (laughs) yeah and sarah you what is your relationship with this movie and with christopher guest movies overall I feel like I saw all the Christopher Guest movies that had come out to that point, which maybe it's just this one in Best in Show when I was like 11 or 12. And I was very into them and they contained a lot of jokes that I didn't fully get. But I was also just like mockumentary, I think, was a style that was especially culturally relevant in the late 90s and early 2000s. You had you had Waiting for Guffman. You had the Blair Witch Project. Need I go on? <laughs> no, that covers it. Right. <laughs> And I was also a tween who was like very into The Daily Show and the, um, was the Comedy Central show at the time just called The Upright Citizens Brigade? Yeah, UCB Upright Citizens Brigade, totally. That's a right. huge favorite show of mine when I was a kid. Right. And like, I was just, I felt very, like both the, the comedy sensibility, like it made me feel smart for understanding it. And it also made me feel like I was really learning what adult human beings were like. And in <laughs> retrospect... I feel like that's true. I think that like the the Christopher Guest movies are so good because they feel so perceptive about their characters. And I think one of the things I've realized about myself that I love the most is like characters who people have been playing like for a while and have kind of a long term relationship with which and you know, one of the things I love about this movie is that it's a like 79 minutes of actual movie runtime that was edited down from about 60 hours of footage. So you can feel the amount of, you can feel how lived in these characters are. Yes, for sure. You know, I kind of feel like it's cliche though. It's a thing that I really believe about parody or, or whatever this is. It doesn't work if you don't love the characters or if the like person who's making the movie doesn't love the characters, but I'm, Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like Christopher Guest really toes the line unloving or not I don't think he hates the characters or doesn't like the characters but like he doesn't also annoyingly love them too much it's not <laughs> precious I think it's an interest- yes it's uh-huh. an interesting balance yeah I saw a quote about this movie particularly but kind of all of his characters that he loves to paint these portraits of ridiculous people without ridiculing them right and I think that that's like a really apt balance and it's hard to strike but totally that's theater I think that's also just like community theater is ridiculous people living in a world without ridicule for themselves or others. <laughs> that's a wonderful way to put it. Sarah, can you take us on a journey? Always. I am the quirky St. Clair of the show <laughs> and of my own life. And we are going to use my muse dance. You can't tell, but I'm thrusting. Wrestling with the muse. <laughs> His jeans in that yeah. scene. Are your jeans backwards? That's the real question. You could anybody can thrust, but can you wear them backwards? 
I haven't tried it yet, but yeah, I love God. I love Corky's apartment. We'll get to it. <laughs> okay. Waiting for Guffman is a movie where Christopher Guest plays Corky St. Clair, who is an actor, director, dancer, triple threat, theatrical wunderkind with a beautiful bowl haircut, who left New York and came to Blaine, Missouri, which is a small town in America's heartland that is about to celebrate its sesquicentennial. And they have commissioned him to write a musical called Red, White, and Blaine. It's very important. As they explain later, if the musical doesn't come off, then the celebration won't come off, and then there will be no more Blaine, and there will be no more Missouri. And then what? You tell me. And we're left to assume that there will be no more America. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So Quirky St. Clair has to save the country. And... So he, he's done community theater productions before, most notably <laughs> Backdraft, where... <laughs> Woody, I feel like I need you to just explain how this went. <laughs> I'd be thrilled. Uh, I've done a couple of productions like this myself. Uh, the two other shows that the town cites that he's done is Barefoot in the Park, which stars two of our characters that we'll meet later, and of course Backdraft, a dramatic story of a fire and the the town dealing with it. But he uh, really took us to an experiential place by lighting some newspaper on fire just to give the audience that experience and um, burn down the theater. As the newspaper tells us, theater burns, dozens flee. Yeah, and just and all that's to say that Corky St. Clair, I think I identify with him because whatever canvas I'm given to work with, I want to do something with it that makes people go, why? <laughs> <laughs> so this is his next big show. He auditions the Corky St. Clair Players, and we get to see various townspeople audition to get to be in the show, which includes his um, cast regulars, Catherine O'Hara and Fred Willard. I'm just going to call everyone by the actors' names, because I assume that's what most of you listeners would do, who do a beautiful rendition of The Night at the Oasis, which I, I love that Catherine O'Hara has such a beautiful voice mm-hmm. and knows enough to like sing badly in a really wonderful and funny way. And Eugene Levy, who's the town dentist, gets a role, and... We also have a hot mechanic who gets a role and Parker Posey as Libby Mae Brown and our narrator. The hot mechanic does not audition. I will say he is hand selected (laughs) to really round out the cast. What's his name? Like Johnny Lightning? Johnny Savage. Johnny Savage? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Johnny Johnny Savage. Savage. I've done so many shows with Johnny Savage. (laughs) (laughs) So we watch everybody bond and uh, have drunk dinners with each other and get extremely serious about this. I I really need to do a deep dive on like, why is Libby Mae Brown so funny? Like, why is it so funny when Parker Posey says Cokes, you know, like it is one of the funniest things I know of and I don't know why, but it's perfect. And so then, you know, Corky wants to try and like use this show to come back to New York, a hero. And so he gets basically a uh, a Broadway talent scout guy named Guffman who's going to come watch the show. Mm-hmm. He <laughs> then decides that he needs a much bigger budget. He asks for $100,000. He doesn't get it. He storms out, as all professionals do, and he has to be talked back into triumphantly returning, which Bob Balaban is not happy about. Oh, Bob. And... 
then we have our wonderful opening night where we see this musical everyone has been working so hard on. The stakes are sky high. And then we believe Guffman has come to see it. He comes backstage. He loved it. But he wasn't Guffman. There is no Guffman. All flights have been grounded uh, out of New York. And then we go to the future where, interestingly, everyone has left town, (laughs) (laughs) including a lot of people who have never even been out of town, really, in their lives. And we end famously with Corky St. Clair showing us his My Dinner with Andre action figures. (laughs) And everybody has sort of tasted the dream and wants more of it. And that's it. And I feel like that conveys nothing of the joy of watching this movie, which is really just like watching these characters just react to stuff and try and describe themselves. Mm. Yeah, the arc of the movie itself is such a slower role than other Christopher Mm. Guest movies and most movies in general. Mm. And I think that that, again, is like part of the joy is that it's just like it's on a slow simmer the whole time. Yeah, that's true. Uh, And the outcome is just... um, the gentle pleasure, you know, the resolution itself is even like really, um, you climax with the play and then you just leave it there. <laughs> the ideal. Yeah. I, I like, I especially kind of like that about this one is that in the later movies, I feel like the stakes are higher. And as a result, like there, you sort of like have an arc where you're like, will it, like, will this happen or will this not happen? And in this case, like, you don't even know the stakes are being transgressed until they've been transgressed. Like you think that, well, I mean, I think initially maybe I thought that that guy was actually Guffman until you find out that it's not. And it's very funny that it's not. And it's also very funny that he's going to give a newborn a balloon, which is, uh, <laughs> which is like troubling. <laughs> 1996 at its finest. <laughs> Why does Corky work? I think that he loves himself as much as he loves others. Like there's like a, Hmm. there's a balancing act between like being a total egomaniac, but also like legitimately (laughs) loving the stage uh, and the people who, who do the craft on it, you know? So I think that there's like Hmm. a legitimate, sincere appreciation for like, his muses of theater, you know, like, uh, and I, I know a lot of people like that. I am one of those people. So I think he's balanced. Mm -hmm. Like he's not, he's not purely in it for himself. He's in it for his community as like nebulous and, um, disjointed as that community might appear. I think he like does love Mm -hmm. people and the like people who make theater happen. Mm. Yeah. And I feel like there is like the, being a theater kid, I feel like transcends age, you know, because there's something, deeper than that about it and like never let go made me think of like yeah there's really maybe there's two kinds of people in the world people who want to run around reenacting titanic and people who don't and i'm so happy to be one of the people who wants to run around reenacting titanic that's right i don't want to live in another world alex does corky sinclair work for you Oh, yeah. I mean, Quirky works for me. I think I think the reason that you said is is actually really great is like it would be it's like the reason why, like on some level, like early Michael Scott in the office is very difficult because we don't yet know that he cares for people like he's just a he's just like a ruthless, self-involved person. And interestingly, like he becomes more dynamic as he becomes interested in people while the show gets more boring because it becomes more interested in people. (laughs) And this movie's an interesting balance. I think for the reason that you said is that he is like genuinely interested. Like he talks so highly about the couple who is Fred, Fred Willard and what is her name? Catherine O'Hara. Ron and Sheila. Yes. Fred Willard (laughs) and Catherine O'Hara. Like he, he, 
he truly does love these people and that like makes him work but it also just like every detail like every choice that is left from those 60 hours that sarah talked about in the beginning from him practicing dancing by himself in his apartment to just like the titles that his memorabilia is attached to it's not just like random for random sake no it all adheres to a still seemingly unplaceable logic regarding who this person is Mm. how does this woody relate to your experience or or to you both who 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 have experience on the stage oh the stage (laughs) how does this relate to your experience in those places it's like i i truly again i like watch this movie a lot and i watch it with a lot of people and like the only people who cry at it are theater people because it's just too real so like i think there's like a sincerity to it that is accurate and i think that that reflects like Christopher Guest went to theater school. So many of the actors mm. went to theater school. Johnny Savage, the char- the actor who plays him, is like the only television actor who had no improv experience, which is like notably mm. why he doesn't speak in the film, <laughs> except for maybe <laughs> twice. And but went to Julie, like has a theater degree from Juilliard, <laughs> and starred in a production of Waiting for Godot, which is kind of oh, like the namesake of the movie. Oh I know. God. So it's like I think that there's just the sincerity that we have in Corky, like runs through the production as well. You know, like on the filmmaking side, totally. So I think like the deep, deep references are like not intellectual, they're emotional. And so mm-hmm. in that way, it really mm-hmm. works for me. And I think just like this open heartedness is like clown based, reckless abandon of like love and destruction that like Porky <laughs> runs through the world in is like, yes. is me all the time. And I think as a kid, you know, it wasn't until I was watching it this last time that I was like, oh no, like this was my template for living. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like really until... Like fairly recently, uh, and even still, it's like now I'm on board with being quirky Sinclair. But like for a while, I was like, well, this is the only way, you know, like just like being an ambiguously faggy theater director, like floating around in Blaine, Missouri with a wife nobody's never met. And or as he says, fresh off a destroyer with a dance belt and a tube of chapstick. I just there's never a day I don't wake up feeling like I have nothing but a dance belt and a tube of chapstick. And I just like this commitment to uh, the muse of theater and and just like dreaming of so many things, but really like landing where he where he should be. And so I just really I, th- I think for a while I only thought I could be Corky Sinclair. And like especially, you know, back before I escaped my wacky religious upbringing, too, I was like, well, this is it. You know, you're going to move to a small town. You're going to work with like the community players. You're going to teach mm-hmm. drama at the high school and you're going to, you know, recruit the Johnny Savages to like join you in your dollhouses you know like I don't know how direct of a through line it is but really like him playing his with his dinner with Andre make-believe like toys at the end I think really reflects like kind of what it is to be a theater director in general which (laughs) is to like use characters to like embody your dreams and those dreams are often like very boring (laughs) and I I wake up every day feeling that way where I like I I just want to I want to play with my dreams today you know and 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 it doesn't as a professional actor now it's like it's the same it's the same like you know I think I used to watch this movie Mm -hmm. being like oh god thank god I don't do theater like that anymore and now as a professional performer and I've even worked on off-Broadway shows that are exactly like that like they're all like that (laughs) so Mm -hmm. there's a joy in that there's like a there's a release you know you stop waiting for the you stop waiting for your life to start and you just start waiting for Guffman mm-hmm. <laughs> beautiful yeah 
Yeah, and I feel like there's, I mean, this has been a period for me recently of thinking about sincerity as an attribute of artists and how, you know, just watching Titanic during this recent re-release and thinking about, like, you know, Titanic works for me in large part because it is, like, an almost unbelievably sincere movie (laughs) and how weird it is to have a movie that costs that much and feels so sincere. And just I don't know that I, I feel like there's a kind of spell that you cast when you perform particularly in any kind of a, a live or theatrical setting where it's like everybody has to work together and I think that there's a kind of like what I see happening for the characters in this movie is that like they think that Guffman is like the thing that's going to be their big break you know and then is going to bring them to Italian guys <laughs> But it feels like the act of like coming together to do this thing with like absolute commitment, which I think is what we see them do, is transformative. And like, I, I don't, I'm curious what you think of the ending, because I think it's interesting that they like they all everybody leaves. Right. That's what speaks to me the most about this movie and not just sort of like what it says about theater, but what it says about small towns and townies, too, mm-hmm. is like I recognize this town very much, even though, you know, Maine is clearly a different place where I grew up, but like the, just the mechanics of the small town and how everyone knows each other. And like the, the travel agents who've never left the town is like such a write on, mm-hmm. you know, I, I know, know those people a slightly, this is a slightly exaggerated version of those people, you know, a place where like local real estate people are, are celebrities. Like, it's like, I know this mm-hmm. very well and I love what it's doing by way of giving everyone, you know, this like transformative taste to try to be something that the town doesn't allow them to be. And when they're able to touch it, some of them get out. And then we also see a reality for many people from like when they get out, that what they get out into, I mean, it works in a couple of levels. It's like what it may not be especially glamorous. You may be kind of singing your great grandfather's songs at an, at an old age home. And that's not especially glamorous, but it's still like, not being a, a dentist back home where that's the only thing you could imagine yourself being. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I love this ending because it works both in a way where like if you want to read it as, you know, awkwardly tragic, you could read it that way. Or if mm-hmm. you want to read it like, good, I'm glad that they're, you know, I'm glad that they got out of town and that they're extras in whatever this like weird Western commercial. I'm happy for them. I think that that's fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, there's a feeling in like every show I've ever done that like nothing will ever be the same, you know, like you're hoping for your big break, of course. And like every whisper feels like you're going to become a superstar. But like more than that, like every second of it feels like, well, everything will be different after this or during this or Mm -hmm. like, you know, Mm -hmm. like my life is different. And I can honestly even like the weirdest, dumbest lowest stakes production have left me feeling that way. And I think that's why community theater exists. It's to like give people that place, you know? I don't want us all to be professional actors. Like, of course I want professional actors with Mm -hmm. a level of skill and tenacity and funding. And I also want like people in Blaine, Missouri to make red, white and Blaine because like that's the ecosystem, you know? I like years ago worked at a theater that really positioned itself on purpose as being like the pond scum level of the ecosystem. 
And like mm. they really contextualized it with like love and grace to say like, well, that's that's how the ecosystem works, right? Like you need these little things, yeah. you need these tiny bubbles of passion yes. to like feed the big giant scary fish on the bottom. <laughs> and that doesn't mean that one or the other is more important. It means that like that is the cycle and like that weird experimental stuff on top is what drifts its way down into like, you know, this like high gauge theater. And I think like, you know, Broadway has never been, I think for anybody with like legitimate artistic intent, like has ever been like kind of the paragon of like taste. I think it's just like the force of capitalism in theater, but like we need all of it. We need all of it. Mm. And I think that goes for every art form and every industry, but like in theater, especially like you really do need the entire ecosystem or else like the big fish won't live either. Yeah, I agree. What do you think of the ending, Sarah? I mean, I guess I'm mostly just worried for Libby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talk more about that, please. Well, I mean, Libby Mae Brown is like, let's talk about Libby Mae Brown. Let's please. I love that Corky is enthralled, as far as I can tell, when Libby Mae Brown does her audition. And I feel like he sees star power in her. And she maybe sees star power in herself. But I, I think that like the, I don't know, the way that Parker Posey depicts her offstage, just like that opening Dairy Queen monologue, or just like her with her, her you know, with her chicken leg Ugh. on the barbecue. Ugh. It's just like, I don't know, I could watch like a whole Marvel like franchise <laughs> about Libby Mae Brown. <laughs> absolutely and I want that I'm saying that I want that and like in this vibe or like in a different in different tones I don't know like one genre per movie that's usually how it works I hear you I'm not concerned about Libby Mae Brown though okay good personally I feel like she's doing all right because I don't know that I see her dreaming of being a performer I think I see her dreaming of like the next thing yes oh my god yeah You know, the hope I received from her in the final Dairy Queen monologue, of which there could not be enough in this movie, is like her dreaming of like innovations in ice cream. You know, like she's dreaming of like, she's talking about derbies and she knows that derbies are where it's at, but like there could be another phase of ice cream in the world. And so I think that wherever she is, she's just dreaming of the next thing, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope for her. I love it. I hope for all of us. I I hope. I hope. (laughs) No. Exactly. Like, to hope for Libby Mae Brown is to hope for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) We all have our little tiny chicken leg. We do. And just, what is she fanning it with a mirror? It's just incomparable. (laughs) There'll always be a place for her at the Dairy Queen. I went to my high school reunion, uh, I think last year, my 20 year high school reunion, and there were not many of us, there weren't many of us in the first, in the class as it was, and there definitely weren't many of us who went. And I knew a couple uh, Libby Mae Browns in school who seemed to be doing fine. They seemed to be doing, (laughs) seemed to be doing okay. I think maybe are having, I I didn't know because we didn't go super deep, but are having less of a perpetual existential crisis than I feel like I'm having. (laughs) Good for them. What's it like? Yeah, totally. I would be like, what's the secret? What is the secret? Tiny chicken. Uh I mean, I think that that, you know, to loop it to the bigger arc of the movie too, is like the characters are where it's at. You know, like the story of this movie is just the people in this town and Libby and so many others. And Mm -hmm. there's a reason I think that like the audition 
scene gets the most play with people who are like, don't even know the movie, you know, they've seen Mm. some of these audition scenes. Mm -hmm. And part of it is because all of the actors devised their own audition material. Hmm. (laughs) That shooting day was the first day that any of them had really seen it or done it. Oh my God. Which is what community theater auditions are. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. you just throw something together and you hope for the best. And there is, if you haven't seen it already, both of you and everyone listening, go Google the deleted scenes of this movie, but specifically the auditions because Bob Odenkirk (laughs) sings. He is that vampire in the hallway. Oh my God, God. the vampire. The vampire, he sings a full song in his makeup and cape. (laughs) Libby Mae Brown does a dramatic monologue of her own making. Oh, wow. Ah. Where she unplugs somebody from life support. Like Million Dollar Baby, but a reverse, I guess. <laughs> That's right. I think she's the precursor. <laughs> she's the thousand dollar baby. She's a warm up. <laughs> but yeah, that the stakes of this movie are like live and die in that scene. And you can see, you know, t- to your point where Corky thinks they're a star. Corky like loves these people. He loves these people. Yeah. And we love him for it. It's also smart not to answer too many questions, which I really enjoy about it, such as the Michael Hitchcock character. And Michael Hitchcock is the guy who like wants to have auditioned, but wasn't able to have the opportunity to audition. Steve. Yeah. Steve Stark. Councilman slash pharmacist. Yes. And then <laughs> yells, like, he's basically shrieking for Corky at the end. Uh-huh. And we don't know. I mean, we know what's going on there, but we don't know what's going on there. It's never addressed. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, yeah, I love a movie that dares to not give you too much information about the dynamics that it's dangling in front of you. I, I yeah, we really know everything, right? Yes. We know everything we need to know. Yes, the man exactly. loves Corky. <laughs> loves him. And Corky's not having it. No. That's so interesting, right? Perhaps Corky knows that his ego would become engorged (laughs) like a tick if he were to be in a relationship with Steve Stark. That's right. That's very temperate of him. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but he craves the Johnny Savage. You know what I mean? We all, I personally really relate to craving the Johnny Savage, despite my knowledge that that's not the wisest choice or the psychic the psychically the most sound i think he can't help but like you know want the mechanic yeah. right and that's his thing right he wanted to come and wear one of those big sweeping hard hats <laughs> and the chaps yeah uh-huh. totally, uh-huh. and especially you know why would you end up with someone who's really into you when you could be with someone who is extremely elusive with regard to your adoration for them that feels personal, Alex, and uh, I hear you. I'm looking right at you. Well, it's personal for both of us, so that's good. <laughs> but even in that, too, there doesn't seem to be a malice. Like, I'm not threatened no. by that. Uh, although, like, clearly Johnny Savage's dad is, like, not quite on board. I don't feel like anybody's going to be hate-crimed, which is a piece for me. <laughs> I love the level of put off, but not enraged. Brian Doyle uh-huh. Murray is as jo- Johnny's father in that scene yeah. where he's yeah. just like, I fucking him to death, but is like, you know, he doesn't say anything, but he says a whole lot with his eyes. A whole lot. Well, there's a deleted scene of Corky and Johnny's dad hunting. <laughs> That's all <laughs> I'll say. Check it out. <laughs> 
boy. Which again, it just I think speaks to that like Corky wants to be in this community. Like why he moved to Blaine, we'll right. never know. I don't think we need to know. But like he clearly wants to be here and he's like building relationships with the people in this town. Like maybe for self-serving yeah. needs for his like own theatrical desires, but like truly out of a love for the people in this town. Well, yeah, and I would love to kind of contextualize where in history this is happening because I think it's like, I think this is the same year as the Birdcage. I'm pretty sure mm. they're both 1996. Mm. And Corky, St. Clair, and uh, Starina <laughs> uh, feel like characters who I think you could look back on now with kind of the perspective and the way culture is at least at allegedly trying to function today and be like, this is terrible. These are broad stereotypes. And in Christopher Guest's case, he's married to Jamie Lee Curtis. And yet I feel as someone who was alive at this time, and I think a lot of people who weren't probably feel the same way that like, these feel like extremely, you know, for all their comedy, like broadly comedic, and also as a consequence of that humanizing portrayals. Mm -hmm. And I guess like, I love how much the town loves Corky. <laughs> they like need Corky. He feels treasured by this yes. town. <laughs> well, and and I don't mean to, I'm not picking apart what you said. I think I'm picking apart what you're characterizing. Mm-hmm. But like, I think why this works for me is it's not a broad stereotype. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. pile of very specific stereotypes that feel lived in for like the character. Like these feel like stereotypes mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the character itself and not mm-hmm. sort of broad. And I think that that is kind of some of the way that like Starina ends up working. Although I haven't seen the breakage in a while, so I don't want to speak to that. Mm. But I, th- I do think like Corky seems to work again, not because it is or is not a broad stereotype, but it's like, it's all of these parts of the personality that's expressed that feel extremely lived in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and just like, you know, to loop it back to this idea of the ecosystem, like Quirky's an important part mm. of this town's ecosystem too. And I think that mm-hmm. queer or queer coded people are an important part of every ecosystem at all times mm-hmm. and always have been. So like, I, I think it's important to like, that this movie treats him with love and like this town treats him with love because he's like integral to the fabric of the town, you know? And like, clearly he's doing something for Steve Stark and like by (laughs) extension, probably many others, you know? And like, I don't know. I also like that we never get a sense that he's like missing anything in his life. You know, like he Hmm. like speaks of this like mysterious wife that like likely doesn't exist, but like, I still walk away feeling like, well, he's doing what he wants. He's satisfied. He's gratified. And then when he's not, he goes back to New York, you know, like I want to live in a world. And I think like, you know, again, I don't remember the first time seeing this, but I was, we, I was pubescent, you know? So like, Mm -hmm. I just had this feeling that like, but he's doing all right. Corky's doing all right. Like I could someday do all right, you know? Mm. Yeah. And I think that there's like, you know, not to get into the queer theory of it all, but this like difference between identity based on your practice and identity based on Mm -hmm. your biological markers Mm -hmm. of whatever those things are, I think is like a spectrum that we're like constantly swinging back and forth on. And identity politics are really like complicated. And uh, I love that we just have a character who's like defining himself and we just have to take the terms of his life, like as he speaks them to us and like, Mm-hmm. He just like tells us that he shops for his wife Bonnie, and like I accept it. It's not my business, you know. Like, it's so true, and he, he's got a Judy Tenuta shirt. Oh, that's oh uh, my god, my favorite uh-huh. detail in this entire movie uh-huh. is that you love Judy. I Tenuta. Do love Judy Tenuta so much, as do I. I love uh. her so. I love R.I.P. Judy Tenuta, but I loved. 
again, it's such a specific detail that you're like, oh, okay, I know this guy. Yeah. But like, yeah. how? I don't know a guy in a Judy Tenuta shirt, but like, I was like, I know this guy. But you do in your heart, you know. Yeah. Ex- that's exactly right. And this is how we're introduced to him. Yes. <laughs> Judy yes. Tenuta shirt. God bless her. And, you know, God bless him for doing it. And nobody know, nobody questions it. They're like, oh, look at that nice lady on that shirt. <laughs> you know? No one has any idea. He's just our New York state of mind. Oh, my God. How do you? How would you characterize his style? Flawless. <laughs> um, but crafted. You know, like, everything we see him mm-hmm. in is, like, so chosen. And I think, like, the highest couture that one could hope for in Blaine. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know? specific hand touched you know like i'm thinking of his of course like cropped sweater vest his crisscross jeans his distinctive haircut when he returns to the show like i love when he quits and then returns after being begged like he returns in a short sleeve jumpsuit with an ascot like an american flag (laughs) ascot to honor red white and blaine like he wakes up every day and chooses what to show us about himself And like can relate, you know, I feel like this is like to me, the great motivator for like finding more and better clothes is that like, what if you could be your own costume department in a a quirky St. Clair slash Carrie Bradshaw kind of a way like that's and like I wish that that was sold more to us when we were younger as opposed to like, you can't look like trash at the dance or whatever. Right, right. I think that's a good point. And I think that that's something that like this movie encourages us to do is like again to like chase sincerity yeah Yeah. consider loving something you know totally Mm. yes i mean i think that that is i don't know i can't i'm i'm so nervous or reluctant to speak about like other times in the better elements about them because i don't know what i was missing or what was real or whatever but like i do feel like in a place in a time where a lot of points are scored by being able to point out like what is wrong with particular things. Like it is very Mm. easy to forget that like really loving shit in an unabashed and sincere way is itself fantastic and phenomenal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's really just like nice seeing all these people love these things. It's nice seeing a a dentist come out of his shell. (laughs) Oh my God. And just be lit on fire by the music theater. It's just, it's changed his life. He can't imagine not having it. Yeah. Can we talk though about the scene that, (laughs) that I can see, like it's, I think it works so well because every time I watch it, I just imagine my various friends, parents in this situation is when they go out to dinner together. Oh my God. Um, Oh my God. (laughs) When I think this is the perfect moment to flag, like Dr. Alan Perlman's Carson bit is rough. It is rough. No, thank you, Dr. Alan Perl. It's so it really sucks because like, yeah, but but right, because like the Carson bit is like, I don't even know how to describe it without also being extremely offensive. It's just like a classic sort of like offensive to indigenous women bit of the 60s yes. and like aggressively offensive. And, and, you know, where it's just you're like, oh, boy, this really is like a, a Caesar salad with like a, a turd in it. <laughs> and you just can't do anything about it. Mm-mm. I mean, I think, but what it does functionally, I think it shouldn't excuse the material of it, but it does Mm -hmm. paint the idea of like this man, 
he is a student of comedy, right? Like he, t- he t- Dr. Alan Pearl tells us like, you might think I was yeah. a class clown. I wasn't, but I studied the class clown. <laughs> and I think it's so yeah. telling. Like I had a dad like that who like really thought he was Tim Allen <laughs> and like would do these bits that were like, not suited to him you know just because he thought that that made him funny you know like it was like oh I just know one man that kind of feels like me so I'm gonna like do the bit that he does and I think like it tells us more about like who Alan Pearl is it's like he just found this bit that to him is funny and he's just gonna commit to it and I would argue like all of us know men like that all like I know all kinds of people like that but like the people I have to like scold on the street are like mostly straight men that are like doing a bit that they found at one time and like don't know how to do anything else yeah well and this is and it's no and I'm again this isn't meant to excuse the bit but him doing that Carson bit in 96 is outside of the content of it no different than the amount of uh, men of a particular type who are still just doing anchorman bits 20 years later who's like oh that's God, that's yes. like the kind of comedy that they learned and internalized and are doing it as a means of still being funny and you're like that's a that's a 20 year old bit that you're doing. <laughs> like, yes. no, and so and yeah and so it, i agree it illustrates something about him but it is difficult because right in the middle of everything else going well you're like shit this is stonage very well which is like the essence of talking about movies from the 80s and 90s. And I feel like like I, I was thinking about this today and I was like, I bet you would imagine that like that's just a very carefree topic. And you're like, no, because like in, ev- in every movie, I swear to God, like basically every movie, there's like at least a scene where you're like, wow, this is horrible. This <laughs> is like, you know, racist sexist homophobic anti-fat whatever and like it's just like lobbed in there as if you weren't allowed to make a movie without doing this at the time yeah that's how we grow right that's how we learn yeah the smartest people among us are the ones always at the front of that pack being like come on you guys come on do better be better (laughs) and the slowest people behind us are like really trying to pull us backwards and then like the people in the middle are dr alan pearl right who are just like behind they're just behind yeah the interesting thing that happens in the scene is he does that, but then she also brings up the circumcision bit and she's like, oh my God. and she's like, my husband told me not to bring up any of the Jews stuff. And I was oh like, this God. is so small. This is small. Th- like, I know this conversation. Yeah. Yes. Like, I've seen this conversation go down. Right. Where they're like, so you're a Jew. <laughs> I don't feel strange about that. Totally. Tell me all the Jew things. I met one before. <laughs> What's it like to be with a circumcised man? <laughs> Cause I've never been with anybody else. And then she's whispering <laughs> drunkenly across the table. Shh, I'm like, talk. Oh my God, I've girl seen talk. this transaction. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. Many times. The power of a, a drunk woman of a certain <laughs> age, like menopausal ish drunk women. Yes. Answer to no God. Yeah. <laughs> I was a waiter in a small town once and you encounter several of them a night. Mm-hmm. That's right. And some of them are handsy. Yeah, I was just going to say, are they slipping you their numbers? Yeah, they'll grab on you. Oh, I got grabbed twice yesterday by the same woman at two different points in the day. At Mardi Gras? At Mardi Gras. Oh. They just can't deal. Well, yeah, women, some of us are very repressed. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. (laughs) And then the Pinot Grigio lights something up. (laughs) That's right. And you know what? Grabbed people, grab people. Yeah. This is true. This is true. Yeah, the... um, Outside of the joke, which is not great. I love that scene because of how mm-hmm. much we learn about all of them as as individuals and characters and right. about how much 
Fred Ward would like to be in control of every situation around him and clearly is not capable of keeping shit together. Yes. Well, I think that that scene really demonstrates to like, you know, not to get comedy nerd about like the role of improv in the movie, but like one of the reasons that improv is so compelling to watch is because you're witnessing people think in real time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and like, good actors kind of evoke that sensibility but like even then you're like well you rehearsed this for six weeks or whatever mm-hmm. whereas improv is just like our i think our synapses are firing in a different way like as listeners yeah. as speakers as creatives and i think that scene really typifies like exactly what you're saying alex that like ron albertson really is always in control and the only time you see him thrown off you know, in the footage we have, the only time you ever seen him thrown off his game is when she brings up his minor surgery. And like, you see his brain like fully short circuit. And that is the gift of, I think that dynamic between the two of them, mm-hmm. between Ron and Sheila. And like, that's the joy of an improv is like just seeing if you can get somebody to short circuit a little bit. <laughs> and it works every time. Sarah, why does Fred Willard work as a comedic force? I don't know, Alex. Why Why does anything happen on this planet, you know? But, like, he's perfect. I think there was something that... Um, I once read Jerry Lewis's memoir about Martin and Lewis, Dean and Me, which is very good. And he talks about how, like, the great thing about doing improv with Dean Martin was that there was, like, there was no thinking, there was no pausing. Mm-hmm. Like, they just kind of... Or maybe he was just saying that about Dean Martin, but that, like, there was no thinking. And he also said, mm-hmm. Dean always had ice, which I love <laughs> as a thing to say about someone. That's really great. because <laughs> he's so cool. Yeah. And I think it's that. I feel like it's just, like, <laughs> the Fred Willard just feels like one of those ants you know, that like gorges on nectar or whatever until the ant gets all like, you know, just distended and full of stuff, you know, and that's Fred Willard full of one liners. (laughs) And he just throws it out. He does. He's not afraid to like hit you over the head over it again and again and again. It just happens. You know, well, I think to to your point, Woody, that's that's why, like as a person who I think for like 50 years was like that in some public facing way in one way or another seeing him get tripped up over the surgery stuff is so funny because like this is a person like you never see have to pause about he like seems to be a person who's like running like one of those like mechanical like wind up you know monkeys with the tambourines yeah not tambourines what are the symbols (laughs) monkey with the tambourine wind up toy (laughs) i would love a wind up monkey with tambourines it's a little stevie nicks monkey Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. There's an improv concept of moving at the speed of fun. That, like, again, when I say it out loud, it makes sense to me. But based on both of your reactions right now, I'm like, oh my god, I'm in a cult. Um, no, I like it. I just never heard it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 It all just sounds like it has a parallel with like AA stuff. I'm just like, what could it mean? I like to think I know what it means, but I bet it's something else. Actors don't know either. The idea is like you just you just fire it out. You just put you just let it fall out of you. And like you're gonna make mistakes and that's okay. Like that's not the point. Like your brain works differently when you're like, you know, balancing on top of the ball and you let the ball roll forward. It's the same with snowmobiling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and just like, I don't know, seeing him and Catherine O'Hara working together. And playing a married couple, like, it feels like every glance, every gesture, like, has so much meaning behind it. Like, I don't know. It's, like, a really special thing. It really does feel like it replicates the kind of insight that you get from a documentary. Yeah. 
Well, and, and he's with Fred Willard going at essentially like, he's like a metronome going at like 180 beats per minute. It's just like the magic of improv finding stasis yeah. and everyone finding the correct speed to go right. and the correct sort of intensity to operate at in context of everyone else that they're sharing either scenes with or they're sharing sort of like larger composite scenes with. It feels magical. Mm-hmm. We, improv is either good or very bad mm-hmm. or it's like either like great or very bad. <laughs> and this is a, <laughs> this is a beautiful Ooh, yes. example of it being great. Yeah. I guess for me, and particularly for people who found it young, it seems like you you both found it young. Mm -hmm. It was doing something I wasn't seeing in many other places at that time. And I wasn't seeing it happen as masterfully. Mm -hmm. I think there's something about like the way the movie flows to like that the show, the performance of Red, White and Blaine, including the overture, which feels like 17 minutes, but is only two and a half, feels like a contrast to the improv of the rest of the movie that really I think like brings out the sweetness of the improv you know because once you get to this like so enjoyable to watch but like clearly rehearsed mm. stilted kind of ridiculous performance of Red, White and Blaine like you remember these mm-hmm. like snap crackle pop feeling scenes of like all of these amazing actors like playing off of each other and then you hmm. see this show that is like clearly rehearsed and like yes that's the joke but it's also like I think speaks to the sensibilities that are different there and I think it really does like again like sweeten sweeten the finish you know by having Red White and Blaine be this kind of crafted moment that like reminds you that the rest of the film was like so different yeah and just shows you kind of the like wonderful sincere amateurishness Because it feels like they are able to, like, they fully have their moment. They experience, you know, what they, like, I think they did what they came to do. They've achieved. You know. The audience knows that they did that as well. Like, I love that so much of the footage of Mm -hmm. the performance is the audience loving it loving it sincerely and fully and laughing and gasping like they are transported body and soul and I think that that is like almost always true of community theater because it is theater by the community for the community and like that's what Mm. commercial theater doesn't always replicate Mm -hmm. is like commercial theater is like a business exchange to some extent and community theater is like a community exchange and so there is this energy between the audience and the performers Hmm. that is sincere not in every case but in more cases than like Broadway and I think this movie like serves that to us people are loving it And not just Steve, you know, like you think Mm. like Steve as this character is like really on board with Corky as like, oh, maybe he's the anomaly. But no, everyone in that auditorium, including our fake Guffman, are like having the time of their lives. Yeah. Time of their lives. Yeah. And, you know, and this movie isn't like heavy handed with a moral or anything, but I do feel like and, you know, it does. And everyone's like gutted when it turns out that the real Guffman wasn't there. But I do feel like. To me, the takeaway is like, it's like great enough to like do something that, that captivates people yeah. like that, you know, and it is yeah. for Blaine. Yeah. And that joy is what like sustains people in the town. Like people are still thinking about Corky's performances, <laughs> whether he sets a theater on fire or not. Yeah. Like he's giving people like a context for their yeah. lives. This kind of like, you know, the ability to live truthfully in these imaginary circumstances. I feel like that's what I didn't used to get about kind of live performance is mm. that like it lives on in sight of people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. in a different way than anything that gets recorded. Yeah. Yeah, it like rearranges you. Yeah. In a yeah. fascinating way. Right, it lodges in people's DNA like a nuclear bomb test. <laughs> <laughs> a good one. It affects your offspring. 
<laughs> yeah, it rewires your brain. And I love that this movie doesn't try to make the theatrical like cinematic, you know, by the time we get to the play, like it's still a community play. And I think that that's like one of the things as we continue to gut yeah. the American theater as like we have been doing for 50 years, like yeah. we are either imagining that theater has to be cinematic by putting like screens and all this digital stuff on mm-hmm. stage and these hyper-realistic sets, or we're just like taking theater away altogether, forgetting that like an impressionistic painted wagon does a different thing to your brain than like an actual wagon. It's not about pretending that you're like on a prairie in 1854. It's about like having this like aesthetic impressionistic experience. California will be a sight for these weary eyes. It's just (laughs) about like riding it out, like feeling the feelings and watching these people singing their songs to you. And like, it's not when I go to the theater, I personally don't want to feel like I'm like, in front of a gazebo with a young soldier. I want to like see people like paint, giving me that sensation. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to see these people like singing with their stools for fun. Yeah. And you don't want the theater to make you feel like you're transported out of the room and into the place where it's set. Like you want to be in the room. Right. 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 Together. Yeah. Together in the room. You know, it's live. Mm. It's for all of us. So the theater group that I was a part of when I was a kid was like, in our school, but not really in our school. So like, it was sort of like a community theater thing that they worked with in the school. And I was always surprised that, I mean, it was good, but like, Mm -hmm. we weren't great, you know, like, and I, I was always surprised when we'd do like whatever, like five or six nights and it would sell out every time. And I was like, that's more than just parents that can't like, it's weird that more than just parents came to this thing. And I always kind of felt that way then, which was clearly, an issue with self-esteem or whatever but like you know and looking back on it though I think about like the plays that I saw when I was not a part of it and I remember seeing Our Town and my friend Robin Metcalf who was a 17 year old girl who just like worked as a waitress at the local brew house played the stage manager of Our Town and like completely changed my brain like completely changed my brain and just thinking about like all of those people who are going there whose kids weren't in the theater and they were like going to be entertained in you know, mid nineties, rural Maine. Yeah, I'd love to talk with them now and be like, what, how do you feel? What are your memories yeah. from that time? Because it really does. It really does mm-hmm. get into oh, yeah. you. Changes you. Changes you. I mean, my, one of my like early community theater experiences was like uh, the, uh, a person, part of the show was like my first everything, like my first secret boyfriend, my first, like I had all like many, many people like had all these like personal experiences tied into this, like, you know, seemingly ridiculous and maybe less than well executed production of Joseph in the amazing technical or dream coat. But like, it wasn't about that. It was about the dream that the coat represented, you know, and like all of these feelings I still have 20 years later about like doing that show with those people and, you know, little smooches backstage. I think were really like what shaped me from that show and you know we all hopefully have those experiences more and more and more and more yeah yeah and there's also just something beautiful about it being it a thing that is not the most important thing becoming the most important thing right like i think that that is beautiful and enviable for many Mm. and also like keeping it in context too i think like one of the things that makes theater special as a practitioner now and like is that it's temporal and that like 
one of the things that makes the stakes in this movie so gutting is like when Guffman misses this performance, like it's a one night only affair. So like Guffman can't see this again. It's different than being like, well, we'll just do it again for him when his plane can land or whatever. Like that's not the point. You can't do that. And I think that that is what makes the stakes so satisfying, but also like speaks to the reality of like what it's, what it's like just like be a person, you know, whether you're making theater or not is like, Mm -hmm. sometimes you only get one shot and like, that's okay. You know, like that, that can be disappointing but like it's okay not every Mm. shot can be replicated and this play is just one night and like you know again like why part of the weep is like when I watch this with theater people it's like that's really what it feels like to like you know sell your soul for months and months and months and like sacrifice everything you've ever had to be in this ridiculous show and then like the show happens in one night Mm -hmm. and then it's just done (laughs) and then you just have to figure out what to do tomorrow and all the other tomorrows you know like and everything's different now and Guffman missed it And if Guffman misses it, like, he'll never see it. (laughs) I guess it's like, this is making me realize that the person who really loses out is Guffman. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Totally. That's the moral. (laughs) <laughs> Although he puts he puts Corky to work later. Oh my god! It's L O. Funny postscript. How are you, Henry Higgins? It was this watch too that I was like, oh my god, that's what I look like when I try to play straight characters. You know, <laughs> I like got I got kicked out of theater school in New York, and in my exit interview from the program that I was in my theater teacher a gay man himself told me that I was too gay to book anything but children's theater and that's why I would never work <laughs> too too gay to book anything but children's theater is the, it's the best. best it's the best put that on a business card quote and and I'm prone to exaggeration but that is a direct quote exactly on a on a crew neck sweatshirt with my own quirky St. Clair face on it oh my god and of course I dropped out of school and got a job with the children's theater but that's not the point the point is I in retrospect now see that like that's exactly what I looked like trying to play straight <laughs> characters so I feel oh you know God. forever uh, a kinship with you know that brand of theater because we just didn't know what we didn't know you know oh my god that's so good What what's the closest red white and blame performance either of you have been in mm. oh my God, I haven't been in my red white and blame mm. and that's what I want it's my dream mm. <laughs> Mm, mm. I have been in a few red, white, and blains, but unfortunately all of them were religiously toned. Mm. Well, I should say not just toned, they were missionary plays. So when I was in high school, my high school only did missionary plays, like seven or eight of them on rotation so that you could, seventh through 12th graders could do them and not repeat. And they were all like, they were as bad as you imagine them to be, but they were kind of like the same energy that the end of this, of Red, White and Blaine has this like patriotic explosion. Like ours were the same, except for the explosion was like Jesus stuff. So same, same tone, different destination, but I won't say more. I'll just let your brain fill in the gaps of like how ridiculous they were, but missionary place, missionary place. I actually, I take it back. I think that the Valentine's Day live stream we just did was my Red, White, and Blaine. <gasps> oh. <laughs> that was pretty close, I feel like. Alex, can you as an outside observer talk about how it, you know, the quirkiness of it all? <laughs> Many people, so I. So here's what I've learned about you, my dear friend Sarah Marshall, mm-hmm. when you do live stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, this happened in the series of live shows back in September, and this happened uh, very differently in a very different iteration in this uh, live stream on Valentine's Day, is you really show up and you 
without putting it in the text of what you're doing, process whatever you're going through or thinking in a very elaborate <laughs> metaphor that I don't think was planned to be a metaphor, but turns out to be an extremely apt metaphor. It, it's like you and you think of it and then you're thinking about how to do it. And you're like, I know that this is probably a metaphor, but I won't know all the ways it's a metaphor <laughs> until it's over. Right. Like, so for the yeah. live shows back in September, I was so struck because you ended several of the shows by setting up a scenario in which you and Jamie Loftus would get drenched by condiments mm -hmm. and people reported back <laughs> from the, from the, the seats, uh, saying that the second they dumped out, they could taste mustard. Like that's, it was, it, it was intense. We're not going to do a mustard show again. We might do a condiment show again, but I think we're going to stick to like ketchup and maybe like a sweet relish. <laughs> a sweet relish might make, might make more sense. But I was struck because like, it really just worked as this metaphor where for you, being in public and getting to debasing yourself quicker than anyone could debase you and then gaining power from doing so in a really fascinating, mm -hmm. really fascinating way. Really super fascinating. Just way. like Annie Sprinkle. It was yeah, yes. And it was yes. And like <laughs> it was so great being able to be the like little cultural theorist watching that happen uh, by your side. It was tremendous. And so for the live stream recently, you went in as a android from the future that was in a number of generational iterations down the road of an android based on yourself. Jamie mm -hmm. Loftus was the, was the same. Jamie bought Turbo. And there was, there was a, a off screen, there was like a HAL knockoff uh, called BIMBOT. And you <laughs> were trying to figure out if love is worth the hassle. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I hadn't fra I like that phrasing of it. And it was fucking rad. <laughs> and it's so it's great because like it's really it really is like again it's not like you're you're not like I'm going to I mean you do you do think about the stuff in advance but you're not like I'm going to deal with this theme this way this theme this way this theme this way you just take it all in. <laughs> And it sits in you like 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 kombucha. You've been calling me kombucha for at least four years. Totally. I love that. Totally. And then it's when it's ready, you pour it on everybody. And then everybody gets drenched. And that's how you know you've had a good show. The roar of the grease paint, the smell of the crowd. <laughs> they leave with good gut health. Balanced pH. We try. <laughs> <laughs> It's really, it's really, and that's what theater is, you know, that's, Gut it's health. beautiful. Yeah. Being drenched. Exactly. It's the ecosystem, baby. It's about rearranging your gut health. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. I also just like, I, I'm at the stage where I'm like, I, meditation feels out of reach for me currently, but improv feels like it gets me to some of what mm -hmm. that's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. I think like kind of being present in your body as a means of like, kind of theater mm. or comedy feels like like luring your soul back into your body by like putting a marshmallow there yeah as opposed to trying to like you know trick it into returning right right yeah you just sweeten the honey pot and you wait right just just like bear baiting <laughs> we're like you know like being an ancient greek and waiting for the gods to speak to you again you know like that's why we're doing this theater just like are the gods there can you speak to us can you tell us what to do? Because we don't know anymore. Are you there, gods? It's me, Corky. <laughs> oh, my God. So much of the, like, making yourself open to being able to hear the gods is just about 
you know, figuring out whatever you have to do to be in tune. And for everyone that is different and it's about like sort of like clearing the things that distract from your ability to hear them and then honing the things that, you know, make you more receptive and for everyone that's different for you, that's uh, mm-hmm. improvin. That's right. As Catherine O'Hara says, uh, you know, just trying to help me change my instincts. Or, or at least ignore them. <laughs> so it's brilliant. And just like how that, that the way it cuts, like the editing in this movie, it's like a feat of editing. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also, this is such a, just on the nose thing, but like the specific way her hair is bad. Uh-uh. I mm-hmm. can't. I can't. She, she, it's, it's giving strictly ballroom in yes. my opinion. Uh. And then it gets bigger until show day. Like it's, it peaks on show day, which is a feat because it starts high. <laughs> and then show day, I, do they add an extension? I don't know how it is so far off of her head. I applaud it. I applaud it. It's, there is always like the big thing about the hairstyles on middle-aged women in particular in the town that I grew up in is that they would always like, they'd be doing three different effects, mm-hmm. you know, like it'd be going like the front would be going one way, the sides would be going another way, the back would be doing something else. And I feel like that's what she's representing in a really great way. Yeah. Is just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, I love it so much. That's right. In her complimentary, <laughs> but not matching sweatsuits with her husband. <laughs> God, I love those sweatsuits. I love them. And like, I only recently did an inventory. Of, oh, we need to get you one of those, Sarah. Please, <laughs> if you need, I have about uh, eight or 10. So if either of you need me, please let me know. <laughs> yes, of course. Of course. <laughs> Woody, how tall are you? How I'm six feet tall. Oh, Sarah. See? You could make that happen. Oh my God. Go team. I think so. I, I think spring tour, sweats, <laughs> sweatsuit, yes. Leisure suits. May we all be people of leisure. <laughs> okay. Well, we know that uh, Dr. Pearl has a baby. <laughs> Unseen. But who is the daddy? I wonder if we ever got to see that baby in a scene that wasn't in here. I truly don't think so. Not once. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I can't picture a child in a Christopher Guest movie. Uh-uh. No, there's no kids, huh? Which is very wise. Uh-uh. I don't think he likes kids, which is great. Well, you can't ethically work with child actors, right. I think, and, and some would say, and I might agree with them. I think that's true. I would agree, especially, I can't appro- I meant imagine a kid improving in this environment either. No. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, God. Totally. That's a great point. That's a great point. I mean, well, just look at what happened in the rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, I'll, I'll go first. I, God, I don't know. Everyone is fantastic. Everyone is fantastic. I think, is his name Steve? Is Steve the the guy who wants to be in? Steve Stark, the pharmacist slash councilman. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to pick Steve Stark. I I just want Steve to know someone's out there rooting for Mm -hmm. him. I love that Steve wishes he could have been present for this, but the auditions can't be held any other time. No. He's got to do inventory. That's showbiz. And I like that he just can't contain himself at the end. He can't. He has love for Corky and he's not afraid to show it. And I love that about him. Yeah. Woody? I mean, it's like not a surprising choice, but it's got to be Corky. It's got to be Corky. Because I think as much as he, 
upends the boat, he also keeps it afloat. You know, he comes back to the show. He steps into Johnny's role when Johnny can't be there. He keeps spirits high when he could really like let everything fall to shit in the dressing room. You know, when Libby May comes back and says like, he's not here, like Corky reassures them and keeps them going and like delivers this amazing performance, which is maybe like daddy wish fulfillment. You know, like maybe that's what I want my daddy to be in the world. Maybe who the daddy actually is in my life anyway is Guffman, you know, like just <laughs> never present. So I think uh, I would say Corky, but maybe like on a different day, I would say Guffman himself. Mm-hmm. Mm. What is uh, Dr. Alan Pearl's wife named? Mrs. Alan Pearl. Mrs. Alan Pearl. Okay. <laughs> Bummer. <laughs> Well, I have. I think my daddy is the the unnamed Mrs. Pearl because I love how I love how psyched she she is slick for her husband. Yes, which is like does not make her the daddy alone, but like you know, I I just love that she like like she's not being supportive out of a sense of obligation. She is like genuinely jazzed for like his his journey and his creativity coming out, and I love that. I love uh, seeing an example of that. Yes, you know. Yes, and she's so excited she calls the babysitter to have the baby brought to the theater <laughs> to feed it during intermission because she's busting. <laughs> I love her. She's such a great character. She's so funny. What do you, how would you like people to find you? I'm on the internet, kind of all over the place. <laughs> My name. I've heard there's some good stuff on the internet. <laughs> you know, it's a real mixed bag. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm I'm on the socials. I'm on I got the website and um very soon you can find me live in the state of California with Alex Steed. That's true. And uh Alex, I'll let you speak more to that. But I'm on the internet, woodysticks.com and uh on the socials for as long as they uh you know don't get deleted by the algorithm. <laughs> Woody and I are doing a couple of shows uh, together. It's like a podcast but in real life called Steady Bad Luckers, where we're going to tell each other about uh, lovable losers from our respective industries. We'll be in San Diego on March 16th. We'll be in Los Angeles on March 17th and March 18th. And we will be in San Francisco on March 19th. We'll link it in the show notes. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing the episode. Thanks, of course, to Woody Sticks for joining us. Uh, don't forget, Woody and I are doing that show, Steady Bad Luckers. You can find information in the show notes. Don't forget that You're Wrong About is going on tour. You can find information about the spring tour in the show notes. Thank you so much to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make the transitions on our show sound so sweet. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions. You get bonus episodes like our Sex in the City bonus episode. Season one, it's fun. You want to hear us talk about it, I assure you. Thank you for making this show possible by supporting us. We appreciate you. Next week, we talk about Sister Act 2 with Lynn Childress. Uh, This was a ball of a conversation. We recorded this episode on the same day we recorded Rosemary's Baby. So tonally, that was funny to do Rosemary's Baby and then Sister Act 2 back to back. But I think you'll enjoy it. That's it for me, everybody. We appreciate you. Thank you for being here. You, my friend, are good. Good.